dear friends of Jesus Christ, before diving into the story again, uh, let me give you a brief recap of where we've been so far and all that we've learned about Elijah and Ahab and Israel at this time. Recall that this is a dark time in Israel's history. Under the leadership of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, Israel has more or less slammed the door in the Lord's face, and they have sought refuge in Baal, the Sidonian god of fertility and rain. Nobody worships Baal anymore, that's an ancient religion, uh, but the desire for security, for more, for more crops, for better return on investments, the worship of this god, which Baal is a manifestation, is still alive and well. So Israel is in search of more, and they're rebelling against the covenant. They have put another god before their lord, their god, which is a, a, a violation of the first commandment in, in the Ten Commandments. What will the Lord do in response to this rebellion? In the midst of this, a man named Elijah rises up to speak truth to power, and he says to Ahab, as the Lord whom I serve lives, there will be neither rain nor dew in Israel except at my word. A little bit of irony here in that Baal is supposedly the god of rain and fertility, and as Israel worships him, the word of the Lord comes in and says, it's not going to rain for three years. As we've seen, Elijah is somewhat of a mysterious character, but it's become clear now that he does indeed hold a prophetic office in God's mission to Israel. When Elijah proclaims the drought, the Lord enacts the prophet's word. And so begins the consequences of Israel's rebellion, or is, uh, yeah, the consequences, the judgment of God on their rebellion. But God's grace remains effective in the story too. And last week, we noticed both the judgment and the grace evident in Elijah's exodus from Israel. This exodus is judgment because Elijah's departure symbolizes the reality that God has left the land. But it's grace because the Lord preserves the one who speaks on his behalf. And so long as the Lord sustains the one ordained to speak on his behalf, there is hope for the people whom the office was designed to serve. So with all that in mind, let's return to the story this morning. Now it's our, our typical pattern on a Sunday morning uh, for me to read the text, and then I preach. I talk about the text for a while and offer thoughts and commentary. Uh, this week I'm going to try something different. Instead of reading all the way through the story at once, I'm going to break it up and offer uh, words in between as we read the text. So I invite you, if you'd like, to open up your Bibles and follow along. First uh, Kings chapter 17, the words will also be projected on the screen. Um, and you can remain seated for this today, since we'll be reading the text intermittently throughout the sermon. Hear the word of the Lord. Sometime later, the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land, then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Elijah has been biding his time by the Cherith Ravine east of the Jordan. 
God told him to go there immediately after Elijah declared the drought. We don't know how long Elijah drank from the creek and ate food provided by the ravens, but we know that one day the ravens stopped coming and the water stopped flowing. So it's time for Elijah to move on. Of course, this lack of resources is not the real reason that God told Elijah to relocate. If the Lord could, uh, can command the ravens to bring Elijah food, surely he could have commanded other animals to fill up Elijah's canteen. The Lord is not lacking in resources. Rather, it's his desire that Elijah head north to Zarephath. And we have to wonder why. Why Zarephath? Zarephath was deep in Baal country. This is Jezebel's home turf. Why not some rural town in Israel? Surely there were many faithful widows in Israel who would have been, who would have been happy to house and hide a prophet of the Lord. Certainly there were many widows in Israel who are also running out of flour and oil. But God does not send Elijah to one of his own. And it's tough to say exactly why. Certainly, I think this is another sign of God's judgment against his people. For the time being, God has set up a boundary between him and them. And like with the ravens, I think there might be a little jab in this relocation to Gentile territory too. Imagine reading this story from a Jewish perspective. This would be a good reminder to them to not think of God as being their special possession. A good reminder that if they reject him, he will partner with someone else. But God could have sent Elijah further east or south in order to make this point. Why send Elijah into the heart of Baal country? To answer that question, we need to remember one of the main questions this story is designed to answer. And the question that it's designed to answer is this. Who really is God? Who really is in control? Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? This question gets answered in a dramatic way in chapter 18. But here in chapter 17, I think we get a little foreshadowing. On Baal's home turf, the Lord will prove himself to be the sovereign one. Keep that in mind as we continue to read the text. The word of the Lord. When Elijah came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So at this point, it's important to know that, uh, or to remember that Elijah only knows a few details about the person that God has ordained to care for him. He knows that this person is a widow, and he knows that she lives in Zarephath. But no one meets him at the city gate with a sign like the ones you see at the airport. Elijah has to live into this word from the Lord, and 
he has to uh, test the Lord's word in a way by invoking the help of the widow he meets at the gate. If she is indeed the one the Lord has ordained to serve him, then certainly she will get him water and serve him some bread. But the first widow that Elijah meets is not in a place to give generously. The Lord's curse on Israel has shut down the reins in Baal territory too. And not only is this woman without a husband, but she and her son are about to die of starvation. But while the pantry is nearly empty, there's something else rattling around in this widow's heart. And we have to wonder how this all played out. Did the Lord visit her in a dream? Did, the angel come, did an angel come to her house and ex- tell her to expect a, a man of God coming to the neighborhood? Or did she simply have a strong hunch, the, eternal, or the internal witness of the Spirit, that she, needed to offer hosp- that she needed to offer hospitality to a stranger in need? Whatever the case, the Lord had impressed something upon her, and when Elijah spoke the word, that oppression was brought to the fore. And I think we're seeing in this a little glimpse into how the Lord does his work in the world between the internal witness of the Spirit and the spoken word. We're seeing this take place in this text. It seems unfair in a way, though, for God to give this call, this call to offer hospitality to a stranger, to this woman. I mean, wasn't there a wealthy person in Zarephath who had a little more flour and oil who could take care of Elijah and it wouldn't be so hard on them? The Lord is really putting this woman in a tough position. She has to choose between her maternal instinct to protect her son and the internal compass or the hunch that she's been giving. But I think uh, that seeing this, pers- seeing this story from uh, the situation from a worldly perspective, Yahweh has come to bless and not to take away. Elijah speaks the words that encourages faith in the living God. These are such famous words all throughout the scripture. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. It's easy for Elijah to say, I suppose. He spent the last few weeks of his life being miraculously fed by ravens. But this widow has yet to see the living God in action. Do not be afraid. We're not used to hearing these words spoken by prophets in the Old Testament, although that happens time and time again. It's usually the angels They get to speak these beautiful words of assurance. And they usually speak them just before or just after God does something amazing. Do not be afraid, Mary, mother of Jesus. You have found favor with God. Do not be afraid, shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Do not be afraid, disciples. He's not here. He is risen. It's a foolish phrase to say to someone if you can't actually back it up with the reassurance of security. But Elijah knows that the Lord lives and that the Lord is at work here in Zarephath. And so he bolsters the woman's faith with these words of assurance 
Do not be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, Elijah continues. But first make a loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Then she went and did, as Elijah had told her. Elijah's request I find to be a a little strange. It, It makes you wonder what his parents taught him about how you're supposed to be a guest in someone else's home. I mean, he essentially says, feed me first. We'll see if there's any left over for you. This request would indeed be a little strange if we stripped it away from the context of the larger story. Recall that Elijah is operating in accordance with the Lord's word on his life. All he knows is that God has commanded a widow to take care of him. What he's simply doing here is living into that promise by inviting the widow into obedience. And this is important for the widow too, I think. Elijah's word is resonating with what the Spirit has been doing in her. She she may fear for her son's life, but now she knows, now she knows through this confirmation that she's getting with Elijah that, that the Lord is at work in this. But this little exchange, I, I think we need to see it as part of a bigger story too. What the widow of Zarephath is modeling here, it's so important to see. God has come to her. God has called to her. And she is responding to God by giving God the first fruits of her pantry. Now this is a little complex, but, but stick with me. I think, it, I think it helps to understand what's going on here. In this instance, the widow of Zarephath is modeling the kind of life that Israel was supposed to live. When the Lord gave the land of Canaan to Israel, the land was divided up between the 11 tribes. The Levites, uh, they didn't get any because they were priests in the temple. And then each of the 11 tribes split their territory up among the families that made up their tribes. And everyone had their own little slice of paradise. But then, and this is the important point, the Lord told them that they were never to think of the land as their own possession. For the land belonged to the Lord. They were stewards, not landowners. And one of the ways that the Lord kept this reality front and center was by claiming the first fruits of the harvest as his own. So you know what a, a first fruit is, right? It's, uh, it's the first apple that turns red on the tree. Or it's the first cluster of grapes that turn purple on the vine. It's the first pick of the harvest. And the call of the Lord here is that that belonged to him. But it wasn't so much a tax, uh, you know, the Lord's tax on the land. You know, give me this and I'll let you have the rest. That's not what's going on here. Um, It was a way of reminding the people that everything that grew in the land, all that grew in their fields and on their trees and on their vines, all of it belonged to the Lord and was to be stewarded for God's glory and their neighbor's good. And the covenant stated uh, that so long as Israel gave their all to the Lord, 
They could count on the Lord to give the blessings all back. The covenant demand was, serve me with your whole heart, your whole field, your whole life. The covenant promise was, and I will bless your families and your fields. But what did Israel do? Slowly they began to see the land as their own special possession, a commodity to be leveraged for personal gain. But the widow of Zarephath, what does she do? She goes and gives her first and last fruits to the Lord. Everything she has is being used in service to the Lord and the neighbor. She does this in faith, trusting that as the Lord receives her gift, he will bless her family in return, as Elijah has said. And I think this widow is a little picture of the true Israel of God. So God has put a wall up between himself and his people, but here outside of the land, he calls to a widow and ordains her in a way to be his people, a representative of his people. It's amazing. Now, before moving on to the story and continuing to follow it along, I think maybe a word needs to be said about this first fruits business, that all that we have belongs to the Lord. When I was young, I remember overhearing conversations in church, these thick Dutch accents, and yes, everything we have belongs to the Lord, you know, and, and uh, I remember um, my parents, too, just being up front with their giving. This is what we give. This is why we give. I remember when I got my first job, my dad, get my first paycheck, my dad's like, now it's time to start giving. I thought that was so annoying, right, in the moment. It's like, my first paycheck, this is mine. I get to do what I want with it. God, my, my dad was teaching me something else. Who, who does your resources belong to? And I find it sad that I rarely overhear conversations like that anymore. And it doesn't mean that they don't happen. I think they probably do. But sometimes I worry that we've got ourselves in the habit of offering God our leftover fruits instead of our first fruits. If the statistics are right, most Canadians are leveraging their first fruits to live a life they can't afford to live, amassing property and personal possessions they can't afford to have. This is an orientation that Baal would be proud of. But worshiping Baal is a dangerous game. And here's a question to ask yourself from time to time. Maybe more often than time to time. Who is the rightful owner of your resources, gifts, property? Remember that you are a steward, not an owner. And as you give your all to God, you can expect that the generosity will be reciprocated. The new covenant in Christ's blood cuts deeper than the old, but some of the same principles apply. In view of God's mercy, says Paul in Romans, in view of God's mercy, offer your lives 
as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. And Jesus, when he was talking about, to his disciples about discipleship, he said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And here's the important part, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. So hang on to your stuff. Hold on to your possessions and you're going to lose life. But use them all for my glory. Let them all go for my, my kingdom. You're going to find life. That's the promise. In faith, the widow of Zarephath responded to God's gracious call And she became the means through which the Lord sustained his prophet through the drought. And so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So all is well in the widow's house. They have the Lord, they have bread and oil, and that is enough to ride out the drought. But then the Lord throws them something that takes them both by surprise, and perhaps it will take you by surprise too. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, why have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. This is a frightening and confusing moment. Both the widow and Elijah are deeply disturbed and thrown off by this terrible tragedy. In her pain, the widow confronts Elijah directly and in a way puts the blame on him for coming into her life and and then she's wondering about her own life and her own sin and wondering, what's going on? Why, why is God letting this happen? Elijah is pain too, though he doesn't blame uh, this boy's death on the sins of his mother. Instead, he takes his pain and anger to the Lord himself and he, he you caused this to happen. Why? Why on this widow? It doesn't make sense. And then three times, Elijah stretches his body out over the boy's body. And then Elijah prays this prayer for resurrection. Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord answered. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down to the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. As I was writing this sermon, I 
to be honest, I just found this whole section to be kind of confusing. And I wasn't quite sure what, what, what God is up to and what he wants us to know today about this whole scene here. Um, well, there are a lot of questions I have, and maybe you have too. There are some things I think we can tell for sure. Recall that the Lord has already proven himself to be more powerful than Baal on Baal's home turf. But what about Mot, the Canaan god of death? We haven't, I haven't introduced you to Mot yet. Um, one of the pieces that Mot plays in this story is that the Canaanites believe that every year Mot would basically capture Baal and hold him hostage. And that's why it wouldn't rain in the land for months at a time because Baal was kind of held captive by Mot. And so, um, basically, um, what, we're, what we're seeing here, so the people, didn't, the people of Canaan didn't worship Mot because this is the kind of guy you want to keep at bay. Like, you don't want this guy uh, doing more than necessary. And it's even hard enough when he holds Baal hostage um, so, in a way, Mott, Mott had sovereignty over Baal, the capacity to take him and hold him hostage for a season. And one of the questions maybe we are being asked to ask here, or being summoned to ask here, is who's more powerful, Mott or Yahweh? Baal had the bend the knee to Mott. What about Yahweh? We've already seen that the Lord um, can cross boundaries uh, that we wouldn't think he would cross from, from Jew to Gentile, and he works there to, to save and deliver, but can he cross this boundary? Can he cross the boundary from life to death, and can he rescue out of the grip of Mott? Ian Proven, a, 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 a writer, he, he wonders about this. Is there any boundary that God can't cross? What about the boundary that separates the living from the dead? And then he writes this. When faced by Mott, must the Lord, like Baal, bow the knee? Elijah knows the answer, even if the woman does not. And so he prays, and the boy's life is restored. Even the underworld is not, underworld is not a place from which the Lord can be barred. Life can storm even death's strongest towers, and rescue those imprisoned there. I think both Elijah and the widow are taught something important by this miraculous resurrection. The woman's faith in Elijah is, is certainly deepened. Now she knows that Elijah truly is a prophet who speaks the truth and the very words of God. But Elijah's faith is deepened too. His identity as a prophet is confirmed in this moment, and also his um, boldness as a prophet. The Lord forces his hand in a way and forces him to engage the situation and, and to, to make a bold prayer of faith. Perhaps the Lord is preparing him for the battle that's about to take place on Mount Carmel. This resurrection of the boy at Zarephath is the first resurrection account in the scriptures but it won't be the last. In the New Testament, Jesus raises a number of people from the dead. He raises a widow's son in the village of Nain and hands him back to his mother, just like in this text. He raises Jairus' daughter too, and, and Lazarus as well. 
These resurrections were a blessing to the families uh, that had lost their loved ones. But that's not the only reason Jesus performed these miracles. He performed them so our faith in him could be strengthened. He performed them so we might know that he is indeed God's son and that he speaks the words of the Father. The sign is designed to identify God's servant. But all these people died again, of course. The widow of Zarephath's son, he died again. Uh, The widow of Nain's son, he died again. Same with Lazarus, same with Jairus' daughter. Even though God displayed his power over death through them, all of them died again because they still lived under the curse of Adam's sin. And what these people needed, and what we need as well, was it's not just a, a temporary restoration to life, but this deep fix in the structure of God's creation. What we need is the storming of death's strongest towers to rescue those imprisoned there. And thanks be to God, that is exactly what God has provided in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus not only raised people from the dead, but he reversed the curse of Adam itself through his poured out blood and then his resurrected body. And then he sent his spirit down. How does, he, how does Ian put it? To storm death's strongest towers and rescue those imprisoned there. You are an example of the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. Spiritually alive. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. Spiritual resurrection in Christ now. Eternal resurrected life with him later. It's amazing. Give your first fruits to him and your trust, not to Baal, not to Mount, not to other, any other source of security in this world. Give your first fruits to him and he will lead you through this life, through death, and into life everlasting. Amen.